Thanks very much, Cathy. When C.J. Dennis says the moods of Ginger Mick was launched in October 1916, one reader expressed anger about the ending. Writing facetiously on behalf of Melbourne's larrikins, this correspondent to the bulletin called it a rotten poem and said in a blunt piece of literary criticism that he'd like to punch the poet in the jaw. <laughs> Actually, Dennis had spent the, f the best part of six months uh, trying to find uh, the ending for his book and the reviews suggest that he got it right. So did the sales figures. The, the initial print run was almost 40,000 copies, extraordinary for a, a book of verse. A second impression of 15,000 was issued on the 1st of November, just uh, three weeks later. Dennis uh, had named the Moods of Ginger Mick to parallel its hugely successful predecessor, whose full title was The Songs of a Sentimental Bloke. Part of the central joke in uh, the first book is the use of the self-consciously poet poetical term songs to refer to the verse uh, spoken in larrikin slang by the bloke. But in the sequel, many of the poems aren't in Ginger Mick's voice and they don't necessarily reflect his moods either. Instead, the moods of Ginger Mick could be seen as its author's attempts to find the right tone or tones and equally the right episodes and narrative shape uh, to tell the story of Gallipoli during the legend's first slippery uh, year. I want uh, now to, well, very quickly, uh, try and trace Dennis's efforts to write this aspect of the Great War as he sporadically produced uh, the poems that finally became The Moods of Ginger Mick. In terms of today's theme, they illustrate uh, some of the difficulties faced by a writer working with dramatic but uh, unpredictable current events. They also chart the shifting ways that one member of the Australian public thought about Gallipoli uh, and its meanings during 1915 and the first part of 1916. The first of the poems that ended up in the Moods of Ginger Mick is a very early response to the landing at Gallipoli. Ellis Ashmead Bartlett's uh, thrilling story appeared in Australian newspapers on the 8th of May 1915. Like much of the country, Dennis was caught up in the excitement uh, and five days later showed his mentor, Gary Roberts, uh, a poem that was named Surrey Bear uh, after the mountain range above uh, what became Anzac Cove. C.E.W. Bean's much more, uh, more detailed and less florid report appeared on the 15th of May. Surrey Bear wasn't actually published in the bulletin, bulletin until the 20th of May. At this point, it was a standalone piece uh, in the voice of a working-class Australian soldier. Later on, Dennis uh, would recast it in Larrikinese uh, as Mick's first-hand account, written on a bit of card and sent back home. The British War Correspondents' Report uh, immediately depicts the actions of the Australian soldiers and the bravery of the wounded uh, at Gallipoli as legendary. Uh, but Dennis goes significantly further, giving those actions shape as a legend. Ashmead Bartlett's version is a story in the sense that a newspaper report is a story. Dennis's poem is, is a larger, uh, more developed narrative, covering the diverse backgrounds of the recruits, uh, the cheering crowds as the transports uh, leave Australia, the innocent soldiers encountering, quote, uh, Eastern sin, 
in Cairo and the frustration of, of training in Egypt. Dennis also tells his story as a grand narrative about Australia, about the nation. The men have gone to war, his speaker says, uh, to prove Australia. And this is, the, uh, this is the final stanza. But Surrey Bear, oh Surrey Bear, the secrets that you hold will move the hearts of southern men when all the tale is told. The sun that lit your smiling bay bore witness to the deed the day our father's fighting blood woke in the southern breed. So, the poem finishes positively. There's an expectation that uh, when all the tale is told, the whole thing will be uplifting, as its, uh, as its first instalment has been. And the last line includes a bit of reframing. A poem about Australian achievement is given an imperial context with a suggestion that the soldiers have exhibited qualities inherited from their British forebears. More importantly, the reference to fighting blood returns to one of the prominent moods of the poem, uh, exhilaration at how ferocious and effective the Australians are as fighters. Dennis isn't as explicit as uh, Ashmead Bartlett about the killing, uh, but his speaker mentions, quote, the taste of blood and battle strong upon us every man and also the little huddled heaps of dead Turks. Later in the legend history, a focus on the Australian dead and wounded would replace the early emphasis on fighting prowess. But in, in Surrey Bear, the casualties are not a reason to contemplate loss and sacrifice. Uh, they're actually a spur to fight harder. For Green is gone and Craig is gone and God, how many more who sleep the sleep at Surrey Bear beneath the sun, beneath the, beside the sun-kissed shore. And little Smith of Collingwood, abandoned round his head, he hums a savage song and vows swift vengeance for the dead. And yes, Collingwood supporters had a reputation in 1915 as well. <laughs> the uh, Australian people had been longing to be able to say that their soldiers were making a brave contribution to the Empire's war effort, but it had been no certainty. And Surrey Bear continues, uh, sorry, contains a strong sense of relief. Its speaker acknowledges his private fears alongside his delight. I tell you strictly secret, I was doubting us myself, but we proved it good and plenty that our lads can do and dare on the day we walloped Abdul on the sands of Surrey Bear. The idea that the Turks have been walloped certainly <laughs> goes further than the, initial, uh, than the official war correspondence, but, Ashley, uh, but Ashmead Bartlett in particular had been effusive about a number of instances of success and had generated enormous, uh, enormous excitement and high expectations. As the toll of dead and wounded mattered rapidly, and as it became clear that the territorial gains of that first day were not going to be repeated, it was necessary to find different ways to speak and write uh, about Gallipoli. The legend couldn't be recalled. Instead, it was reshaped, a process that has continued, continued ever since, though at nothing like the pace of that first year. During the rest of 1915 and the first part of 1916, Dennis sporadically wrote about aspects of the Gallipoli story, including its ramifications back home, uh, trying to find subject matter and tone that seemed appropriate as the situation changed. First, he reflected on the sudden wave of enlistments that followed the news of the landing. Ginger Mick, a poem that appeared in the Bulletin on the 10th of June 1915, 
puzzles about why its larrikin hero might have gone to the war. It rejects a range of possibilities, uh, possible explanations, for glory or a woman's sake, out of feelings for the empire, through a sense of duty to one's country, because of not having a job. They're all rejected. Just one month after the first report, Dennis did what Bean was later to do at length in the official history, and that is to put masculinity at the heart of the story he was telling about the Anzacs. He concludes that Mick volunteers because he feels the call of Stoush, an ancient, an ancient feeling supposedly deep within, within all men. It's an idea very much in keeping with Ashmead Bartlett and with Surrey Bear. But Dennis is already rethinking and reworking. The poem Ginger Mick goes out of its way to stress that within men there are not one but two impulses, loving and fighting. And he emphasises that behind Mick's hard face are, quote, soft thoughts of love for his sweetheart, deliberately uh, revising, he's deliberately revising the ferocity of the image of manhood that had dominated Surrey Bear. Without uh, any further news to parallel the first reports, in July 1915, Dennis turned to the question of mateship. Again, very early in the legend's history, he provides an extended delineation of its centrality to the experience of Gallipoli. The war correspondents first reports and the two previous poems had depicted men working together in partnership in difficult circumstances. But in Ginger's Cobber, published in the Bulletin on the 22nd of July, mateship is the focus of attention for the full 24 stanzas. Initially, Mick is very antagonistic to Keith, a soldier whose upper-class origins are apparent in his wearing pyjamas, uh, cleaning his teeth and not swearing. He's... He's the sort of bloke that Ginger once despised, we're told. However, the toff gradually proves himself to be as good as a working-class bloke. Instead of uh, concentrating on the fighting itself, Dennis examines the bonds between these two men as they fight alongside each other. These are intensified to something almost mystical, and at the poem's high point, selfless courage on the battlefield of Gallipoli is shown as simply an expression of Australianness. The wounded Mick demands to know why his mate will not leave him and, uh, and return to safety. And Mick replies, I'm an Australian. That was all he said. And pride took hold of Mick to hear that name, a new glad pride that ain't the pride of class. So communal bonds of mateship and nationalism uh, trump the divisive uh, feelings of class antagonism. Two poems published in the bulletin in September express reservations about the earlier responses to the landing. The first appears in, uh, in the moods of Ginger Mick, uh, retitled slightly as, uh, as the straight griffin, a term that's glossed as, uh, as the truth or secret information. It shows Mick in hospital, recovering from his wound and preparing to go back to the front. He exhibits uh, some ambivalence about headlines such as uh, Australian heroes, uh, pointing out that when the soldiers return, they will need expressions of gratitude that are more useful, such as jobs. The next poem, A Letter to the Front, goes much further. Now, quote, uh, the froth, the cheers, the flapping flags, the wildly, fla uh, the wildly waving hat are seen as childish memories, and the speaker blushes to recall them. He acknowledges, too, that this shift in attitudes has been brought about by seeing the wounded, and for the first time in the version of the legend that Dennis is developing, 
a letter to the front asserts that Gallipoli has made the nation grow up. Dennis's telling of the Anzac story is conspicuously different from many later iterations in its deliberate inclusion of women, even if their role, even if their role is limited. Already in the straight Griffin, he had given a little attention to the nurse caring for Mick and had referred to the feistiness of Mick's girlfriend. In the bulletin on the 11th of December 1915, Dennis published In Spadger's Lane, which mentions in passing Rose's willingness to fight other larrikin women in the back streets of Melbourne. Essentially, though, it's, it's a sentimental poem about the grief experienced by women uh, during the war, giving Rose as an example by pointing out that she stands for, quote, a million women grieving. By now, of course, it's, it's very difficult to find any positive news from the Dardanelles. In late November, the Admiralty released details about the torpedoing of the Southland on the way from Egypt to Gallipoli two and a half months earlier. Proudly, the Argus told of the Australian troops obeying the order to abandon ship, quote, with no more hurry than a brisk, a brisk march and the singing of Australia will be there. It was Hal Jai, Dennis's illustrator, who suggested that there might be the germ of a poem in this. Dennis went off and wrote The Singing Soldiers, in which the Australians seemed to spend all their time singing. Uh, instead of enthusiastically offering the Turks cold steel, as Ashmead Bartlett had put it, Ginger Mick treats the enemy to a rousing chorus of home sweet home. This, uh, this depiction of the Australian soldiers wearing their happy faces was, uh, was published on the 23rd of December, just after the evacuation of Gallipoli had been completed, as, uh, as many of you will have noticed. Dennis is not the only author to have uh, misled a publisher, but his, uh, I can feel a bit of recognition there, but his claim to Angus and Robertson at the start of December 1915 that, quote, the whole scheme is mapped out and the book should be ready for the printer towards the end of this month was on the wildly optimistic end of the spectrum. Actually, it was a lie. <laughs> In fact, uh, Dennis had written slightly less than half the material for the moods of Ginger Mick and a lot of that needed serious reworking. But the contract still wasn't signed and within a fortnight of that letter it had been. As well as being behind schedule, he'd soon have another major problem and that is how to handle the evacuation. Early in February 1916, he was still not certain and wrote to his publisher again, have decided to kill Mick, but don't know yet whether to finish him up in Gallipoli or not. Four weeks in hospital from late February gave Dennis some time to write and he uh, added more material over the following months, largely just fleshing out aspects of the Anzac story about which he'd already published which I've already mentioned. Finally, on the 1st of June 1916, he could write to George Robertson saying, you will perhaps be relieved to know that Ginger Mick is finished. I killed him last night. Dennis had decided that uh, the death should happen at Gallipoli. In hindsight, it seems surprising that there was ever a choice. That, uh, that bulletin correspondent, supposedly furious on behalf of Melbourne's larrikins, disagreed with Dennis's decision, demanding that the story be revised to end with Mick in France and, quote, in Bonza Nick. Dennis uh, pronounced the moods of Ginger Mick a memorial to the Anzacs by dating its introduction 25th of April 1916 and by dedicating the, bo the book to the boys who 
took the count, which was also the title of one of the chapters. In its uh, concluding poem, A Gallant Gentleman, at last the most prominent meanings of Gallipoli are loss and sacrifice. It's a melancholy and sentimental piece, largely about the grief felt by those close to Mick, with hints of the sacred. The poem's speaker, the sentimental bloke, indicates that his friend typifies all Australians at Gallipoli. When Trent, the soldier whose letter conveys the details of the death, says that he owes Mick something he cannot repay, he's speaking not just for himself, but for Australia and for the Empire. Mick is uh, buried on the beach with Mosa on his grave, the closest his comrades can find to a wreath of golden wattle. Dennis had not always treated Mick well. He'd uh, brought him into being in one of the early sentimental bloke poems as a gambler and a drinker, and he'd named him Mick because he needed a rhyme for chic. Finally, he killed him at Gallipoli because he wanted a fitting way to conclude the book he was writing. But in doing that, Dennis associated him with notions of loss and sacrifice, perfectly complementing the string of legendary attributes Mick already possessed and confirming him as an archetypal Anzac hero. Now, I also struggled with finding the end for this paper, but uh, the obvious way is to use Mick's last word, which was also the final word of Dennis's book, uh, mafiche, digger slang for I'm finished. Thank <laughs> you.